My reading this morning takes us uh, from the end of Matthew 1, where we finished last week, to the start here of Matthew 2. In Matthew 1, we saw that, that God in Jesus Christ was retelling not only the Christmas story, but retelling the story of creation, retelling the story of the whole of Scripture. And he was redirecting Joseph and Mary's story. Here at the beginning of Matthew 2, we're now introduced to a new set of characters who are approaching Bethlehem. And they are looking for this new child named Jesus. This is the fifth lesson. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. This is the word of the Lord. This fifth lesson, I think, confronts us with a dilemma, a question. This whole service, the arc of these scriptures this morning point us to this question. What do we do with this child born in Bethlehem? How do we respond to Jesus' advent and coming? And there are different possibilities, different ways of, of approaching his birth. During my college years, I went to a Christian college in the cornfields of Indiana called Taylor University. And we were always looking for things to do because there was nothing to do in the cornfields. And so every December, when we came back from Thanksgiving break, we were getting ready for exams to, to start. There was an unofficial contest that took place on campus. And this competition involved a uh, a life-size, rather ugly, I might say, nativity scene that was put out in the center of campus at that time. And the competition essentially had two teams, two factions. On the one hand, you had the men's dormitories on campus, and they were pitted against the Office of Campus Safety. Both of them had one objective, one goal in mind. And this was to control the destiny of baby Jesus in that nativity set. 
The way this played out my freshman year is that a group of guys in our rival dorm schemed together and they went and they absconded with baby Jesus and a number of the animals from the nativity scene and they temporarily hid them in their dormitory and then they figured that was too risky. So they decided, they, they came up with a better plan. They, they mapped out some of the, the barns and fields in the area around our campus maybe within a 10 or 15 mile radius, and they thought, why don't we send campus safety on a scavenger hunt this year? So they left them clues, and you know, the, the Office of Campus Safety spent the better part of the next week tracking down each one of these pieces. You can imagine that wasn't uh, particularly fun for them. So the next year, my sophomore year, We all got back from Thanksgiving break, and the nativity scene was set out, but now there was steel wiring around every piece, and they were bolted into the ground. And I remember going uh, to chapel that week, and we got our campus newspapers on Friday, and the headline across the front page of the campus newspaper said, Nativity Set Secured. And I can still remember going to the, to the dining hall after lunch, or for lunch that day, and one of my uh, dorm mates, he threw the paper down on the table, he put his finger on it, and he said, this is a direct challenge to the student body. <laughs> Twelve hours later, he had assembled a whole group of guys from our floor with wire cutters and saws and power tools, and they went on a midnight raid to set the baby Jesus free. These are, these are true stories. You can't make this stuff up. Now, you might think these guys had a little too much time on their hands, which they probably did. But this, this boiled down to more than just the nativity set, right? This was about who had the, the reins of, of power on campus, who called the shots, right? The, the tension between the student body and the guys who wrote our parking tickets, right, sort of erupted every year around this question, What do we do with the baby Jesus? Who has access to baby Jesus? Whose jurisdiction is he under? What's he there for in the first place? And here at the beginning of Matthew 2, we find a similar sort of contest approaching that first nativity. Two competing approaches to this child born in Bethlehem. I think this passage challenges us to ask ourselves, what does the response, what does the the presence, the approaching power of Jesus Christ in our world, what response does that elicit from me today? I want to spend just a couple minutes in our passage studying each of these key players and their motivations. What is it that brings them to Bethlehem? Look with me first at verses 1 and 2 where we're introduced to a caravan of magi arriving from the east. Now, if you can think back to when you've seen the magi on TV or in school plays, I can, I can think back to my own elementary school auditorium, cramming into that little gymnasium. And the proudest moment of my elementary school years in those Christmas plays was the year I was asked to be one of the three wise men. And we, we marched on stage, myself and two classmates, singing We Three Kings of Orient Tar. Right? We, we assumed this was some jingle about an oil company in the Middle East. 
No idea what we were singing. But we had these cardboard crowns, we had these shiny robes on that day, and we felt important, right? We were people of distinction in that production. But if I had taken any thought to what a first century Jewish village like Bethlehem or Jerusalem would have made of these foreign guests, I probably wouldn't have held my head quite so high. These were magi, which is where we get the word magician from. They were, were pagan magicians. They were astrologers, likely from the area of Persia. And that meant they were star worshipers. They were decidedly outsiders. They didn't belong in a place like Israel. To pious Jews, welcoming this traveling band of magi was probably about as exciting as us welcoming a Grateful Dead concert into our backyard. Now, I know this is Vermont, so maybe that that analogy doesn't apply here. But needless to say, the people probably didn't feel very comfortable with with this entourage. Probably not just three wise men, but but a whole caravan of of foreigners from the east. But we've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew, in the first chapter, that this story of Jesus and his gospel will be no stranger to, to scandalous, unsavory types. Here in verse 2, we see that these outsider magi, somehow following their stars, end up proceeding right through the gates of Jerusalem. And they're the ones who come asking to see the king of the Jews. Now we know the rest of Jesus' story in the gospel. We know when he grows into adulthood, Jesus will earn a reputation for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But I love the way, even as as a baby, as a child here, the outsiders are already lining up to see this person, Jesus. They're trying to get close to him. I think Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is that kind of king, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Not just for the insiders, but for the outsiders for the broken and for the lost. But as we might now anticipate, not everyone is so pleased with this caravan's arrival. Verse 3 says that not only King Herod, but all Jerusalem with him was greatly disturbed by this. And we might wonder, what what would the, the sources of this disturbance, this agitation be? Well, strike one we've already talked about, right? The Magi are foreigners. They're strangers. They're outsiders. They eat different. They talk different. They probably walk different than the people of Jerusalem. Strike two, they come oblivious to the politics of this place. They come right up to Herod's throne, and they ask him for directions to the king of the Jews, the the real king of the Jews. Probably didn't go over so well. Strike three, maybe worst of all, they come bearing crummy theology. These guys want to find this king and they want to worship 
him. Clearly a no-no among the Jews, right? Only God is worthy of worship, they would have said. So by the start of verse 4, we see Herod calls this emergency meeting with the rest of Jerusalem's insiders. And they hatch a plan, which on the surface of things looks pretty good at first, right? It's, it's like a Bible conference here in verse 4. They open up the scriptures, they dig into them, and they, they study about where the birthplace of this Messiah is to be. But as the story later makes clear, if you move on into chapter 2, at the very least, Herod himself is driven by pretty nefarious ulterior motives. We know from history that Herod was a deeply troubled man. He lived his life gripped by anxiety. He lived from a deep-seated insecurity and a need for control. Sounds a little bit like me most of the time. Famously, Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman world, who worked with Herod, right, as a, as a regional ruler, he knew how ruthless Herod was, and he said, this is a quote from one historian, from Augustus, it's probably safer to be Herod's pig than his progeny. Herod had a reputation for knocking off family members who got too close to his throne. And we see some of that here. Right? Herod will use the information he's gathered here to push these newcomers push away the magi and push away whoever this new claimant is to his throne. So he dispatches the magi here back out into the countryside. He says, go find this Messiah child. And when you find him, I'll worship him too. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go Search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Think when we look carefully at this single verse, it it delineates for us these two possible responses to the advent of Jesus. And I think more than that, it, it lays bare two expressions of our humanity. Theologian and commentator Dale Bruner suggests that in in this text we see sort of the, the possibilities of humanity living under the power of grace and humanity living within the grip and under the power of sin. The Magi responding, right, seeking Herod controlling. Most of us would probably like to say we're, we're one or the, the other here, but in my experience, it's, 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 it's a fact that both of these realities exist within me. And there's far more of the grip of sin, like in Herod's life, than I'd care to acknowledge to you today. But there are also times in my life where I've, I've glimpsed through the power and the working of God's grace, glimpsed the glory and the brightness of Jesus and his kingdom and responded with magi-like courage 
and risk as well. I think to, to be people who live from the place and the power of God's grace in our lives, that comes with an admission, an admission that the Magi make in this passage, that we need God's Spirit to move us to worship something more worthy than just ourselves, just our own power. Right? I long to, I need a king to worship, the true king. So as you and I are approaching Bethlehem this morning, do we thrill to see the one born to save us? Or are we still like Herod, guarding, protecting our turf, playing it safe, keeping it together, keeping him at arm's length? The advent of Jesus Christ Second coming of Jesus. When, when his kingdom comes in full as he's promised, the scriptures say there will be only one name in heaven and on earth by which we will be saved. It won't be your name. It won't be my name. It will be the exalted name of Jesus. May we see by the light of his lordship today and may we offer him our worship. Amen.